And I would like to invite everyone else to turn with me in, the, in your Bible to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles uh, underneath the chair in front of you probably or nearby. And you can turn to page 1267 and find the text that we're going to study together this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter 1. And then the first two verses of chapter 2. And kids, if you guys follow the word of the day, the word of the day today is disciple. Listen carefully as I read beginning 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1 down through chapter 2 verse 2. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God... According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this passage to read and study and meditate on today. And as I've been thinking about this, Father, I've been thinking 
all week that you would give to us the same sense of urgency that it seems Paul had in his heart when he wrote these words 2,000 years ago. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would descend upon us in power so that you would clear away the cobwebs in our minds and wake us from slumber and stir us, Lord, to first understand what it is that you're saying here and then secondly, to really apply it in our lives and thirdly, to leave in humble dependence upon your Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of this good word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember a few years ago when some of our high school students got up there on ladders and painted on the back wall the mission statement of our church from Matthew chapter 28. It's usually called the Great Commission. It's Jesus' final command to his disciples shortly before he left them and ascended to heaven. Go, and actually the verb is going, as you are going, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And Jesus goes on to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey whatever I've commanded you. And he promises to be with us always, even to the end of the age. You've heard that, most of you, many, many times. And I just wonder what kind of reaction goes on inside you when you hear the Great Commission, the words that are printed there on that wall. Uh, I suspect that for many of you, the words are confusing at best and intimidating at worst. Confusing, yes, because those words raise questions in our minds. Questions like, what does it mean to make a disciple? Even a more basic question, what is a disciple? What does he or she look like? Who is supposed to be making disciples? And how is it done? Those are just a handful of the questions that might confuse us about those words. And so today I hope to clarify and give some of the answers to those questions. But not only that, those words can be quite intimidating for many of us. Intimidating because many of us feel that we're not qualified to obey the Great Commission. You might think, oh, to share the gospel, to help people become Christians, that's something that uber-Christians can do. That's what Billy Graham did. That's what missionaries do. But me? I can't do that. And so we bring a lot of those kind of conceptions and those feelings into this discussion. But I hope you'll see this morning that making disciples is not rocket science, but it's something that all of us can participate in. In fact, what I want you to see this morning is that the grace of God can empower all of us, no matter how far along we are in our walk with Jesus, to obey Jesus' command to help make disciples of all nations. Let me start by telling you a little bit about this letter that we read the first chapter of and the first two verses of chapter two. It's not really a book so much as it's a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. Paul, you see, had met Timothy while he was on, he, Paul, was on his second missionary journey and planting churches when Timothy was just a teenager. Now, Timothy is an older person. He, 10 or 20 years perhaps, have 
passed since those early days when Paul first met Timothy. And Timothy in that interim period had become Paul's uh, most faithful co-worker. In Philippians, Paul says about Timothy, I have no one like him. As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Now, Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison. You might not have known that. In chapter 1, verse 8, Paul calls himself a prisoner. He mentions his chains in verse 16. You see, Paul had been sentenced to die. He had been arrested for his faith in Jesus by the Roman authorities. And he's now languishing in a Roman prison cell. His execution could happen any day now. He doesn't know really how imminent it is. And sure enough, early historians confirm that not long after writing this second letter to Timothy, Paul was beheaded, beheaded by order of the Roman Emperor Nero somewhere around 68, 69 AD. So given that, there's kind of a note of sadness and grief in this letter. Go home and read it later today and you'll notice that, I think. There's, there's kind of this sense of Paul being lonely. But there's also, as I mentioned in my prayer, a note of urgency. In a very real sense, this letter is Paul's last words to the church. He tells Timothy about some things that matter most. And one of those things that matters the most is here in chapter 2, verse 2, the very last verse I read. This is going to be sort of our key verse for the morning. It says, what you have heard from me, Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, if I could rephrase that in my own words, Paul says to Timothy, make disciples that make disciples. But that's our first question, isn't it? What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. That's all. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. The word disciple simply means student or learner or someone who follows, like I was telling the kids. So a disciple is someone who has been born again, who has turned from sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. And if that truly describes you, you're a disciple of Jesus. You're connected with Jesus. You're attached to Jesus. He's your hero. He's your model, your savior. Now, you might feel that you're an immature disciple, but that's okay. You're still a disciple. You might be like the early disciples, the first disciples were that Jesus chose. They were very immature in those early days, but that's okay. You're still a disciple because a disciple is someone who forms his or her life around knowing Jesus and becoming more like Jesus. Discipleship, which is another word I'll use quite a lot. Discipleship is the broader term. It's the daily life of following Jesus and helping others to follow him too. So to explain these things better, I want to point out from the text three things this morning. They all start with P. We're Presbyterians. We start with P. I want to show you the plan of discipleship, the path of discipleship, and finally the power for discipleship. So let's dive in and talk about the plan. Listen, it is God's plan. And by that I mean it is God's will that you flourish and grow in your relationship with him. 
This is obvious from some of the things that Paul says here in chapter 1 to Timothy. He says in verse 6, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that's in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy, I want you to grow. I want you to flourish. He says in verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. He says in verse 14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. See, even though Timothy has come a long way by now in his Christian experience, Paul wants him to keep growing, to keep moving forward, to keep being faithful to his calling. You know, learning new things, becoming more holy, more bold, more conformed to the image of Jesus. Timothy, you know, grew up in a godly home where he got off to a good start. He was taught the scriptures. This is a little picture of of little Timothy as a child. Perhaps he's not yet been born again. Maybe he's not yet trusted in Jesus. But he's learning, he's growing, he's learning, being exposed to the gospel. Paul says in verse 5, Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. He had a godly mother and a godly grandma. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says later in this book, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So all through his childhood, Timothy was making progress. He was learning. He was growing. But somewhere along the way, maybe when he was young, very young, too young to even remember when it happened, or maybe it was under the ministry of Paul when Timothy was a teenager and first met him. Whatever the case, Timothy was converted. That's the meaning of that cross there in the center of the timeline. Uh, Timothy experienced rebirth. He turned from sin and trusted in Christ. But as I hope you know, the Christian life doesn't just stop with conversion. Later in this letter, Paul tells Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. He says in chapter 1, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. What I hear Paul doing in this letter is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you're born again. Yes, you're a believer. You're a disciple. But keep pressing on to know the Lord better and better. That's God's plan for all of us as disciples. To keep growing and flourishing. To know more about Jesus this year than I knew last year. To be more fruitful in our lives. To pray better. To believe the gospel better. To repent better. And to depend on the Holy Spirit better. That's progress, you see. That's God's plan. A lifetime of personal spiritual progress. But not only does Paul want Timothy to grow. He tells Timothy to help others grow and flourish in their relationship with God too. Verse 2 of chapter 2. What you, Timothy, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. See, equip others, tell others, and tell others so that they will be able to teach others also. Let it be an unbroken, multiplying chain, Timothy. Of helping more people grow. See whether you're in the business world. Many of you are. Whether you're a teacher. You might be a stay at home mom. You might be a college student. Doesn't matter. 
in your circle of influence, there is someone, maybe many someones, who are just a few steps behind you. They either do not know the Lord at all, perhaps, or if they do know God, maybe they don't understand how Jesus is Lord of their marriage or Lord of their money or their time or their future plans. They need help forming their life, shaping their life around Jesus. They may not know the Bible as well as you do, and you may know the Bible not very well, but they probably know it less. Maybe they don't know the importance of joining a local church. Maybe they don't know how to pray. Or their life might simply be a mess. Some of us are, our lives are messes. You're there for a reason. To help them take a step closer to God. That's God's plan for his disciples, you see. Growing and flourishing in our own walk with Jesus. And reaching out to others, helping them connect to and attach themselves to Jesus and flourish as well. But how are we going to do this? That brings us to the path. The path of discipleship. The path is there in that key verse, verse 2 of chapter 2. Where, in my own words, I would put it this way. Timothy, what you've heard, what you've learned, what you've seen... What you've experienced in our relationship, share with others who will be able to share that with others also. See, folks, you will grow in your relationship with God by being discipled like Timothy was discipled by Paul, by someone who is just a step or two or maybe a few steps out in front of you. And you will help someone else who may be one or two or three steps behind you grow and flourish in their relationship with God by what? By pouring your life into them in a disciple-making relationship. That's the path of discipleship. I could tell you about the path that my life has taken thanks to discipleship. Um, I was converted. The cross on my timeline happened in college. I was 21 years old when I heard the gospel. And you may or may not have heard this story from my lips before, but the way it happened was that my college roommate shared the gospel with me. And he didn't just share the gospel, he shared his life with me. His name was Hal. Hal is now a pastor up in Athens, Georgia. And Hal befriended me He loved me. He said, let's go to movies. He said, let's watch football. Let's talk about things. Let's talk about girls. I mean, we talked about everything. We did life together. Hal was my friend. I was not yet a believer in Jesus. And then one day, when Hal discerned the moment was right, he began to share little bits and pieces of God's truth with me. He would read a Bible verse here and there. He would confront me about some of my weird beliefs that I had. One time, as time went on and trust had been built up, he said, Mike, if you keep believing the way you do, you're going to go to hell. That, that was news. I grew up in a church and never heard that before. But eventually Hal said, Mike, go to church with me. I went to a church. I heard the gospel clearly proclaimed. 
And it struck me to the heart. And soon thereafter, I asked Jesus Christ to forgive me of all of the wrongs that I'd ever done. And I became his child. And I began to grow. God brought other people into my life during my senior year of college. A guy named Joe, a guy, a guy named Mark, both of whom I continue to communicate with. And these two men fed me. They nurtured me in the faith. And then a little bit later, a couple of years went by and I joined a church with my wife. I've been married now and Susie and I joined a church where their pastor, who was named Al, not Hal, but Al, took me under wing, met with me. He said, Mike, you got questions? And I had tons of questions. We met in a little diner in Greenville, South Carolina, week after week. And Al just answered my question. He didn't have an agenda. He didn't bring a book other than the Bible. And we opened the scriptures together and Al nurtured me and fed me. He helped me decide that I was called into ministry. I went to seminary. And while I was in seminary, my pastor up there, his name was Rodney, took me under wing, mentored me, asked me to be his student assistant. I became the associate pastor of the church. And there was a fellow in St. Louis called Seth Durness. I I knew Seth. I, I asked Seth, please mentor me, disciple me. And Seth helped me understand a lot about life and marriage and ministry and, and my own sin and my own heart. Uh, later on, um, being here in Orlando, Florida, I've continued to get discipled by a couple of men that are key in my life. I have a counselor named Mike, and he and I get together from time to time, and Mike counsels me and disciples me. I meet once a month for lunch with a pastor friend in Oviedo named Randy, and Randy is a couple of steps ahead of me in some areas of his life, and I think I might be a couple of steps ahead of him in a couple of areas, and we disciple and help and nurture and feed each other and encourage each other. Friends, I'm a product of a disciple-making relationship many times over and I know that many of you are as well and now what I'm doing is to try to multiply the benefits that I've received from it I meet every Thursday morning with five men that are in this room most of them and we read the scriptures we're studying the book of Matthew right now Uh, I also meet with a man on a younger man on Friday afternoon and we're working our way through a book together and it's so good some of you are You know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are being discipled right now by a Christian who is perhaps a couple of steps ahead of you in the faith, either by age or experience or knowledge. And some of you are doing the discipling. I heard the other day about a couple in our church who are meeting with a newlywed couple to talk to them about marriage and to share with them a couple of things they've learned about marriage. A man in our church, an older man, almost near retirement, He came to me one day and said, Mike, do you think you could hook me up with some of our seminary students? I would love to mentor them and meet with them. And so he's doing that. See, friends, this is supposed to be happening in our church all the time. This is the normal Christian life. A younger man being mentored and shaped and helped by an older man. A younger woman being led and equipped and trained by an older woman. Paul even addresses this in his little letter to Titus. I don't know if you've read that lately, but in Titus chapter 2, Paul talks about older men modeling for younger, older women modeling and training younger women. This is what we're all called to do and supposed to do because we need this stuff. We either need to be getting discipled by a more mature Christian or we need to be discipling someone else. 
Maybe this could even happen. Lots of you are in life groups. Maybe this could happen within the context of your life group. A couple of you pair up. A few of you form a little discipleship group or something like that. Or perhaps you know someone at work or at school or in your neighborhood or someone you know here at church that you could approach and you could say, hey, what if we started meeting together from time to time on a regular basis and work through the Bible or work through a book for spiritual growth? You say, I, I think we may have something we could contribute to each other's life. That's really what it requires. We just formed a discipleship team here at the church. It consists of myself and 11 other people that are members of UPC. And we're going to start meeting. We had one meeting already. We're going to continue to meet on a regular basis. And the purpose of our discipleship team is to help get more and more of our people into disciple-making relationships. We set a goal this year of seeing at least 25 people getting regularly discipled, formally discipled in this church in 2018. If you think you might be willing to be equipped, you think there's a shred of hope that I, with a little bit of training, with maybe the right resources, like these books right here, See, we've already decided that these are some of the materials we want to use. We're also developing a manual that will be used by our church that will be very specific to the gospel culture of UPC. But these are some other materials that we're already using. If you think you might like to be trained to help someone else grow spiritually, we're going to offer a class beginning next Wednesday, a week from this Wednesday, March the 28th, it's going to be called Mobilize. We did it already back in the fall one time. If you didn't get to take advantage of Mobilize, we're going to offer it on Wednesday evenings, beginning March 28th, 7 o'clock in the evening, over there in the Education Annex. I hope you'll take advantage of that. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about our plans for the future in just a little while. But let's back up before we get too far down the road. And I want to give you now five characteristics of the disciple-making relationship that Paul had with Timothy. And then we will apply that to our context. Five characteristics of the discipleship relationship Paul had with Timothy. First, it was intentional. It was intentional. Paul took his role in Timothy's life seriously. He took him with him on his missionary travels. He lived life with Timothy. He taught him. He held him accountable he gave him responsibilities and he checked up on him later. And even now, here at the end of Paul's life, he is still making Timothy a priority. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Talk about priority. I'm always praying for you, Timothy. The point is Paul planned for disciple-making. He didn't just say, well, if I get around to it, when I have spare time, when I feel like it, you know, I'll help someone else grow. No, he was intentional about his relationship with Timothy. Second, it was life on life. Paul poured his life into Timothy. They spent hours together living life. You know, it wasn't all about church. They shared meals together. They walked through the marketplaces of Asia Minor together. They talked about all sorts of issues, confessing their sins to each other, praying for each other, sharing their faith together, Paul modeling it and gradually giving over 
the responsibility to Timothy. So it was life on life. Third, it was word saturated. Paul says in chapter 1 verse 13, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. He says in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now I ask you, what were the good words that Timothy had heard from Paul? What was this good deposit entrusted to him? It was the word of God, right? Fourth, it was fueled by love. Fueled by love. It's obvious that Paul really loved Timothy. He calls him my beloved child in verse 2 at the beginning of the letter. And that's using the Greek word agape, self-giving love, self-sacrificing love. Paul had that for Timothy. He says also in verse 4, Timothy, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And fifth and finally, its goal was multiplication. Multiplication. Paul didn't disciple Timothy just so Timothy's head could get bigger and filled with knowledge. Paul discipled Timothy in order to develop him as a leader, to develop his gifts and shape him and equip him to help other people grow spiritually. See verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul says, fan into flame, Timothy, the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. See, Paul was evidently involved in the ordination of Timothy some years before. But he's still saying, I want you to grow as a leader. I want you to develop and then I want you to multiply your influence exponentially. So now now let's apply this to ourselves, these five things. If if you and I are going to develop a disciple-making culture here at UPC, we're going to have to follow Paul's example with Timothy. Number one, we're going to have to be intentional. This is not just going to happen by chance. It's going to have to become our priority. Last week we talked about reaching out to UCF students and Valencia and Seminole State and Full Sail. That's not going to happen if we are not growing as disciples and helping them grow. So it's got to be intentional. Second, it's going to need to be life on life. Friends, this is not just a program. It's not a checkbox on a sheet of paper. We're talking about something that will change your lifestyle. If you take this stuff seriously, it will begin to order your life differently. And this is going to be so challenging in our way too busy culture and our Facebook superficial culture. We're going to have to dive deeper with other people. We're going to have to create margins in our life for living life with people. We're going to need to open up our homes and be more hospitable. We're going to have to set aside that need for a perfect looking house. If we're going to really get involved in one another's lives, it's going to cause us to slow down. It might cause us to do a Sabbath rest on Sunday and sleep better at night. You see all the implications of what it means to be a life on life kind of church. Thirdly, we are going to have to be word saturated both with ourselves as well as in our dealings with one another. Discipleship without the word of God is not discipleship. It's just sound advice. What we need in order to grow spiritually is God's word, the Bible. So that's why in your discipling of someone or in being discipled, 
the Bible is going to need to be a part of the discussion. Fourth, we have to be fueled and driven by love. Disciple making is a loving endeavor. It's not a mere duty. This is not just one more thing to do. You can't be discipled, nor can you disciple someone else without love. And fifth and finally, we've got to be focused on multiplication. See, the idea is to get someone else ready to pass the baton, if I could use that analogy. It's like running in a relay race and one person has to hand the baton off to another who circles the track and handles it to another and hands it to yet another. It's like a relay race, passing the baton so that the number of mature believers multiplies exponentially. That's the path. That's the path of discipleship. If we're going to make disciples of all nations. Isn't it neat though how it begins small? One on one. Someone has calculated that if you and I, each one of us, makes it a priority to invest in just one person a year. And if the people that we invest in turn around and invest in one person per year, you know how long it would take to disciple the nations? Less than 40 years. Just by me, you, choosing one person and saying, would you take me under your wing? I need some help with this. Or I'd love to get together with you on a regular basis and let's study the Bible together. One to one. Powerful. Finally, what is the power for us to be able to do this? What's the power for discipleship? It's in verse 1 of chapter 2. You then, my child, says Paul to Timothy, you be strengthened by the what? Grace that is in Christ Jesus. The grace of God in the gospel is our power for being discipled and our power for discipling someone else. Listen, in order to really get the power of the gospel in this chapter, you have to know that Timothy was a man with struggles. Don't idealize this guy. You know, he is a regular human being with struggles. Timothy was an introvert, like me, like many of you. He was often sick. (laughs) If you go back and read the uh, previous letter of Paul to Timothy, he says, take a little wine for your frequent ailments. So Timothy was a sickly kind of guy. And if anyone felt incapable of discipleship, it was Timothy. He was shy. He was easily discouraged and fearful and intimidated by other people. That's why Paul has to say in verse 7 of chapter 1, Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That word for fear means timidity or even cowardice. You ever feel like a coward when it comes to talking about Jesus? Sure. Lots of us do. So did Timothy. But the grace of God will strengthen you in order to make disciples. What Timothy needed was to be reminded of the grace of God. Grace is the thread that runs throughout this whole text. 
It's at the beginning, verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace. It's in verse 9, God saved us and called us, not because of our works, but because of grace. It's in verse 1 of chapter 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. You're in business. You're a teacher. You're a stay-at-home mom. You're a college student. doesn't matter. You're retired, perhaps. It doesn't matter where you are on that timeline that I showed you earlier. Maybe you have not even said yes to Jesus yet. I wouldn't doubt that there's someone in the room, at least one, maybe more, who have yet to understand the gospel and to say, Jesus, I want to be your child and I want to follow you. Maybe that's where you are. Or maybe you are a believer, but you feel stuck. Maybe you're like Timothy, fearful and filled with shame and regret over past failures and mistakes and sins. Listen to Paul's words. God gave you a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Listen, you have the Holy Spirit. You have a Father who loved you before time began and chose you to be His child. And you have a Savior who died for you. You were once lost, but now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. It was grace that taught you to fear. And grace, your fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour you first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, you have already come. It was grace that has brought you thus so far. And it'll be grace that gets you home. So friends, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And together, let's make disciples. Now I need your help before we close. I want you to look inside your bulletin and pull out this insert that looks something like this. It's on the screen as well. If you don't have a bulletin or if you didn't get an insert, they're not enough to go around. There are more sitting up here on the stage, on the step. So after the benediction, you can simply come up and get one and fill it out. What this is, is not a commitment to anything. I know that last week you might have filled out something for our college outreach. This is really not so much a commitment as it is an opinion poll. We want to collect some data. And I'm speaking for the discipleship team. We need some data. And so we need to understand where we are as a congregation when it comes to disciple making. So I'd like you to read through here and pick one or more of the boxes that apply to you. First of all, if the right opportunity happened to come along, would you be willing to be discipled by someone who is a couple of steps ahead of you, either in maturity, age, knowledge, experience, or what, whatever? Maybe, though, you're ready because I've been so persuasive this morning. <laughs> you're ready to be discipled right now. Mike, I want to check that second box. Or if some training were given to you, those books you saw earlier, the mobilized class, a week from this Wednesday night, 7 p.m., if those things were provided, would you be seriously able to consider taking the training? Check that box. Or you might be ready to go. You feel fully equipped. Check the box. I may be ready to disciple someone else. Perhaps, though, you need more time. That's okay. You need a longer conversation with me or someone on the team. Check that box. Or if you're not interested at all in this, check that box too. And I feel so bad. I'm, I, I missed one box. There's one more that some of you might need to write in. And that is, if you're already, I don't know why I didn't think about this. If you're already 
discipling someone or being discipled, would you kindly add a box and check that and write out which one it is? And this, okay, here's what you do. After the benediction, as you're leaving, Kristen is going to be at that door. And Paul is going to be at that door. Paul, not the apostle, but Paul Smith. And they're going to have a box or a bag. And I'd like you to fold this up and put that in there so that we can have some data. Please write your name and contact information on there because to motivate you a little bit, we're going to put all those things in a box and draw one of them. And the winner is going to win a $50 Amazon gift card. Now, that's not half bad. So I would encourage you, no matter who you are, where you are in this thing, to fill that little slip out, put it in the bag as you leave with Kristen or Paul, and patiently await to see if you're a winner. (laughs) Thank you very much. Let's pray. Lord, at the beginning of this sermon, I prayed for a sense of urgency, and I would pray that, but I also pray for a spirit of restfulness. Father, I sense that we don't need to be in a panic. We don't need to act impulsively. And so I pray that Jesus, as you said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, we don't want to turn this into some yoke that's heavy. We don't want to rush about like chickens with heads cut off. We want to be in peace and allow you, the Holy Spirit, to develop in us and through us a disciple-making culture here at UPC. It's not going to happen from one sermon. It's going to take time. And so, Father, thank you for alerting us to the need to be in intentional, life-on-life, word-based, regular, loving, committed relationships with one another. Help us, Lord, do this for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.